Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 246, Clement the 13th. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. Well, we've been alternating Benedict Clement, Benedict Clement, so it stands to reason that today's episode would be a Clement. Today's Pope was born Carlo Rezzonocchio. He was born in Venice on March 7th, 1693, the son of rather newer Venetian nobles, but pretty wealthy Venetian nobles. In fact, his father was extremely wealthy and used this wealth to buy his way into the highest rungs of Venetian society. And his mother was the sister of the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice, Cardinal Maracantinonio Barbarigo. Young Carlo was sent to study in Bologna and and in Padua with the Jesuits, and he graduated with the usual degree in canon and civil law in 1713. He then moved to Rome, where he continued to study the law and then eventually went to work in the papal curia. He served in various governing roles, eventually taking the position in the Roman Rota as a canon lawyer. Now, his parents' money and his uncle's influence certainly helped his rise, as did the fact that he was a Venetian. We tend to think of Italy as one nation— But Venice was a powerful, wealthy, and independent state on the Italian peninsula at this time. So it could throw its weight around in Rome. And it usually had a couple of prelates that it promoted, just as the French and the Spanish each had their kind of priests and bishops and cardinals in Rome. In fact, there was usually a Venetian cardinal, just for example. Now, young Carlo Rezzanocchio was ordained a priest on December 23rd, 1731, and soon would go higher. He was created the cardinal deacon on December 20th, 1737. Now, the reason why he was created a cardinal has some controversy surrounding it. Normally, as I mentioned, there was a Venetian cardinal in Rome that the princes of Venice got to pick. And the Venetians had chosen a different guy to be that cardinal. But Pope Clement XII's nephew influenced his uncle to pick Father Rezzanocchio instead of, you know, this other guy as being more worthy of the honor. Now, rumors flew, and they haven't been substantiated, but the rumors were that the reason for this last-minute shift was because the Rezzanocchio family, which was very wealthy, made a sizable donation of money to the Pope's nephew. Now, regardless of how it happened, Pope Clement Twelfth named him a cardinal, the Cardinal Deacon of San Niccolo in Carcere. Now, soon after the election of Pope Benedict XIV in 1740, Cardinal Rezzanocchio was appointed the Bishop of Padua. There in Padua, by all accounts, even those who didn't like him, They all thought he was an exemplary bishop. He took as his model St. Carlo Borromeo. He worked to promote the reform of the clergy. He spent a lot of his diocese money on the care of the poor. He was entrusted with some diplomatic work, particularly in the conflict between the Holy Roman Emperor and Venice. But most of his time and attention was spent on his diocese, and he did a great job. In 1758, Pope Benedict XIV died, and as we've seen in the past, the cardinals did not have Cardinal Rezzanocchio in mind to succeed him. The big concern which faced the conclave was how much Pope Benedict seemed to give away to the various princes of Europe. If you remember from last episode, he was kind of a guy who just wanted to get along, and he thought it was easier to just acquiesce in some senses rather than stand up to different European powers. And that bought him something, but it was not approved of by everyone in Rome. Now, the thing that epitomized this the most was the conflict which was just on the horizon at the end of last episode, which was the fight over the Jesuits. And we're going to be talking about this for several episodes now. So let's do some background before we delve into the conclave itself, because we have to understand this conflict a little bit more before we understand what's about to happen in the rest of the story. Portugal and Spain were in conflict over the boundaries of their territories in South America. 
And part of that territory was ceded to Portugal in what is now Brazil, and it was occupied by seven large Jesuit missions, serving tens of thousands of native Guarani people. If you've ever seen the movie The Mission from the 80s, you know loosely this story. The Jesuits and the Guarani resisted the Portuguese takeover of their land, in part because the Portuguese were okay with the enslavement of the native people, and in part because it was a land grab. And the Guarani, supported by the Jesuits, revolted and fought a war against both Portugal and Spanish, and refused to be removed from their missions. But the Portuguese and the Spanish won and slaughtered tens of thousands of Guaranis who fought against them. The Portuguese were already unhappy with the Jesuits to begin with. They didn't like their influence, their power. They didn't like the fact that they were wealthy and well-respected. And some Jesuits, to be fair, were not necessarily the most diplomatic and might have caused some controversy. But this war was the last straw. As we heard from the last episode, they wanted to suppress the order entirely in their territory, if not in the whole world. And they sought the support of Pope Benedict to do that. Like I said, the Jesuits weren't perfectly innocent, but they certainly weren't deserving of this. And so Pope Benedict sent a very sympathetic cardinal to Portugal to investigate just before his death and the conclave. So this is all going on in the background, and it's just coming to the surface as the cardinals head into the conclave. And they're not happy with what they're hearing. A lot of their first choices for Pope were vetoed by the various powers in Europe, who were all kind of sympathetic to the Portuguese cause. And so they had to settle on a compromise candidate. But a large group of cardinals swore an oath together they would not elect someone who wasn't supportive of the Jesuits. The cardinals then turned to Cardinal Resinocchio in part because of his evident holiness, in part because no one really knew him in Rome, so he didn't have a record that everyone could complain about, and in part because he was sympathetic to the Jesuits. He was elected Pope on July 6, 1758, and he took the name Clement XIII after the Pope who had made him a cardinal. Now, while there are some other aspects of his papacy we can talk about, the new Pope, Clement XIII, basically had to fight over the Jesuits from the very beginning until the very end of his time in the chair of St. Peter. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. Cardinal Saldana, who had been Pope Benedict's representative in Portugal, had already forbidden the Jesuits there to hear confessions and to preach. He was clearly on the Portuguese side, and he was working closely with the Portuguese prime minister, the Marquise de Pombal. When Clement XIII found out, he revoked the decision, and he asked the cardinal to come up with a more moderate response and a more moderate investigation of the Jesuits. Then he appointed a pro-Jesuit priest to be the cardinal secretary of state, ensuring that the Jesuits' cause would be championed by the Vatican. Now, that didn't stop Portugal, especially Pombal. When an attempt was made later to assassinate the king of Portugal in September of 1758, a couple months later after the visitation, the Portuguese used it as an opportunity to round up the Jesuits. Three were accused of plotting the assassination totally without basis, and they were sentenced to death. The Portuguese bishops were forced to preach against the Jesuits throughout the country, and finally, in October of 1759, the entire order was expelled from Portugal and Portuguese territory. They were welcomed in Rome, and negotiations were attempted to reestablish them, but there was no success with it. But this is just the start. Next came France. The French were still sore from the Jesuits' anti-Jansenist stances, and they were stirred up by Enlightenment philosophes like Voltaire, who had serious problems with the church in general, but the Jesuits were an easy bugaboo to go after. The French parliament, which was dominated by these sympathies, led the charge, and they used every opportunity they could get to stir up the people against the Jesuits. When someone attempted to assassinate Louis XV, just like in Portugal, the Jesuits were blamed. And eventually, after a series of restrictions, which were more and more intense, the king suppressed the Jesuits in France in December of 1764. Now, the Pope reacted immediately. When he got word that this move was being made, he had already drafted a bull supporting the Jesuits and condemning their expulsion. 
In January of 1765, he published that bull and received a ton of hate mail from it around Europe. Now, that same year, he established the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Now, that might not seem like it fits in this part of the story, but it does. As a counterbalance to the Jansenist heresy, the Jesuits have been promoting the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, emphasizing his love and mercy. The feast started with visions of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque a century before, but the devotion she started was carried on by the Jesuits. That's why a lot of Jesuit churches in the United States are named not only after Jesuit saints, but also after the Sacred Heart. And finally, it was made universal by Pope Clement XIII, and it's not surprising that a French woman's belief in the Sacred Heart and support by the Jesuits would be proclaimed at this exact moment when the Jesuits were expelled from France. It was a spiritual response to the anti-Jesuit sentiment around the globe. But as beautiful as that feast is, the response of Europe to the Pope's defense of the Jesuits was harsh and violence, and the pressure on him was building. Malta expelled the Jesuits, as did Spain. Then Naples and Parma followed in 1767. France was so angry at the Pope that they seized again the papal territory of Avignon. But the Pope stood firm under this pretty intense pressure. Then in January of 1769, the ambassadors of France, Spain, and Naples, all at the same time, demanded that the Pope completely suppress the Jesuit order or else. When the letters were brought to the Pope, he burst into tears. And one of the cardinals noted to the ambassadors that these letters would, quote, open the Holy Father's grave. Pope Clement called a consistory of cardinals to meet on February 3rd, 1769, to discuss how he should respond to the political pressure being put on him to suppress the Jesuits. But the night of February 2nd, just the day before, he died from a stroke. His last acts were acts of intense prayer and requests for prayers from all the holy monks and nuns and for God's enlightenment. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. This drama will continue under successor Pope Clement XIV. It won't end well, but more on that next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.